ahead and grab a Bible or a Bible app. We've got some Bibles over here uh, that you can pick up. I like to have like a, like a Bible in my hand. Maybe you're a Bible app person. That's fine. We're going to have these up on the screen as well, I think. But uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 today. So we're, we're rounding out the, the letter to the Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 12, verse 12. And while you're turning there, uh, I, this is just... Uh, I'm going to teach you a a deep secret of Bible study method, okay? Whenever you're studying a passage, it's good to go back and read what comes before it and what comes after. That's just looking at the context. So interestingly enough, today's passage, right before Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, we had Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 that we've been looking at the last couple weeks. And in those verses, which are in the context of what we're talking about today, we see the Christian life compared to an endurance race. Run this race of endurance. This is a marathon, this Christian life is. This is not a sprint, as you've probably heard people say before. And so we are called, as Christians, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's the only way that we can successfully run this endurance race that is the Christian life. Only then can we endure suffering in particular, which again is in the context of our verse today, suffering and hardship. Only if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus can we endure that suffering and hardship in a way that that is good for us, that's good for others around us, and that glorifies God and honors Jesus Christ our Lord. And in that process, by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can embrace God's discipline in our lives in the midst of suffering. Not always corrective discipline like punishment. We talked about this last week, but God's formative discipline. He, he chisels at us and, and sharpens us in those difficult times, more so than any other times in our life, I'm convinced. So that's where we are today. And, uh, and speaking of endurance, uh, as you guys know, our, our family recently endured like two and a half weeks of, of isolation and, and quarantine, uh, whatever, however you define those. I'll have to check the guidelines thing I sent out to you. Uh, but we were, for two and a half weeks, we were separated. My wife uh, and, and my daughter were at our house, and, and the boys and I were at another house. And that took some enduring. But praise God, we're, we're, uh, we were able to move back in on Friday. So we're really excited about that. So Stacy and Hannah, while they were in isolation, you know, they were testing positive for, for COVID, they stayed at home by themselves for like two and a half weeks. And the boys and I are pretty rowdy. So there was some peace and quiet around the fire oak house while they were there by themselves. And I want to be clear about this. There's, there's never a good time to get COVID, right? We all know this is a serious deal, okay? But my wife is a huge fan of the Summer Olympics, and she's on, so she's, she, she's, she's hearing this right now, so I'll catch it later, but I wanted to just bring this up, okay? I'm just saying she's a big fan of the Summer Olympics, and as I started looking at the schedule for the Summer Olympics, and I started comparing that to her isolation at the house without me and the boys, I'm thinking, maybe I should have gone with her to that test because I'm not quite convinced that she... No, I'm kidding, Stacy. I know you're, you're looking at me with that look right now. But uh, all this time, she's been able to sit at home and watch all the events of the Summer Olympics. And she's even seen some of the new ones. You all know they added like four or five different new sports uh, she saw some uh, skateboarding, some, they had sport climbing, she saw some surfing, uh, karate, uh, for all you karate fans out there. Uh, but there, there's one sport that she didn't see, in fact, nobody saw at the Olympics this year, and the reason for that 
is that despite countless attempts to add the sport to the Olympics, it has never been added. That sport is, and Brandon, you know this well, is uh, orienteering, uh, which orienteering, uh, the International Federation of Orienteering has put in applications for the Summer Olympics, for the Winter Olympics, and they keep getting denied. And basically, uh, uh, Olympic or orienteering is, is it's a group of sports where uh, it's several different sports, but it encompasses uh, people with a compass and a map, and that's basically it, right? And then some, hopefully some comfortable clothes, because you're going to be hoofing it. But it can be on mountain bikes, it can be on skis, it can be on foot, it can be at night, it can be during the day. There's a whole group of sports like this. But basically, uh, you, get, you get dropped off in these remote locations, and you have to, to use navigation skills with this map and this compass to find your way to these checkpoints and eventually to the destination. And of course, you win if you have the lowest time. It's a competitive sport. And, uh, and, and the remoteness, I mean, they put you in these unfamiliar places out in the middle of nowhere. The remoteness is one of the reasons that's been cited for why they're not an Olympic sport. Because guess what? Women's gymnastics and competitive swimming, you can get a crowd there, there's hooping and hollering, and it looks good on TV. You can even do those little, you know, world record markers and all that stuff. But orienteering, you would literally have some cameraman trying to, you know, huffing and puffing, trying to catch this dude as he's walking around in the wilderness by himself. So it's just not good for TV, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's never been added. But in orienteering, like I said, you get dropped off in the middle of nowhere, and you have to come up with a route to get to the final destination. You, and, you, and this is part of the competition of it. You've got to come up with the best route, and you've got to stick to your route. So you plan out this route to get to the destination, and then you have to keep checking and rechecking your route to make sure you're not getting off the route, off into the weeds, and losing time, right? And, of course, it's competitive, so you're trying to do this very quickly uh, against other people, uh, and again, you're, you're on foot, you're on a mountain bike, you're on skis. There's any number of, of iterations of it. And the best orienteers, that's what they're called, the best ones always have a route planned out for every leg of the race. Every leg of the race. They've got a route planned out, and then they're using that compass and that map and visual cues on the topographical map to get from one point to the next. But they always have a plan, and they're always checking and rechecking their route to make sure that they're going the right way. Uh, I want to think about Hebrews chapter 12 as spiritual orienteering. All right? Bear with me on this. But think about this as spiritual orienteering. We've already seen how the Christian life is likened to an endurance race. Run the race of endurance. We know that Jesus has already run the race. He's already won the race, okay? Uh, and we get to celebrate in that victory. We get to share in that victory with him. But he is our forerunner. He has gone before us. He's the author uh, and forerunner of faith, as we've already seen in chapter 12, right? And not only that, he's also our final destination. We are running to Jesus. Yes, he's with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. But we're running to be with him physically uh, for the rest of eternity. That's our destination. And we're going to see that next week. But uh, he's already run the race. And then in chapter 12, we also learn that as we're running the race, what will we inevitably face in the midst of it? Suffering, hardship, trials, tribulations, and in all of that, God's discipline, God's loving, fatherly discipline, shaping and forming our characters and our souls in the midst of all that. 
So we, we, we know from chapter 12 that, that there's going to be suffering and hardship. And guys, there's nothing more disorienting, spiritually speaking, than suffering and hardship. There's nothing. I'm, I'm speaking from my experience, but I know it's your experience too. There's nothing that's more disorienting than, than that suffering and hardship that we face in this life. We can end up straying from God's path and losing our way in life when we're faced with difficulty. But if we stay spiritually oriented to Jesus, we can stay on the right path and we'll eventually arrive at our destination. In in today's passage, we're going to see three indicators that we are on the right spiritual path as we're checking and rechecking our route, okay? But we're also going to see three indicators that we're on the wrong path, that we're not spiritually oriented to Jesus, and that we need to make a course correction and we need to make it fast. That's what we're going to look at today. So first, we see three spiritual indicators that we're on the right path. And these indicators are our spiritual help from others and our help for others. That's the first one. And then peace and holiness. That's the second and third. So again, given the context of Hebrews chapter 12, we need to think about these things in light of suffering and hardship. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through these indicators. The first indicator that we're on the right path is spiritual help. So when we're suffering, do we have other Christian men and women, other brothers and sisters in Christ that are, that are coming alongside us in our suffering and our hardship? And, and are we coming alongside others in their suffering? Do we, do we come alongside them as well? So let's look at how this plays out in our passage. I want you to look at our first two verses, uh, verses 12 and 13. And here we see two aspects of spiritual help for those who are suffering. Therefore, it says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So as members of the church, firstly, we are to strengthen our people, the fellow members of the body of Christ. Uh, And this is especially true of those who are experiencing suffering. Because why? We saw it last week. Because they're growing weary. Not they. We are growing weary as we face suffering and hardship. And and, and we're, we're risking falling along by the wayside in our in our endurance race we're growing tired you know the the language was fainting losing heart and we need help from others as christians we're also supposed to straighten our paths so we come alongside each other with spiritual encouragement and support that's part of that strengthening process but we also are supposed to straighten our paths now what in the world that basically means removing anything that's, that's dangerous from the spiritual path of those who are already weakened in their faith through suffering and are spiritually vulnerable. That could be, uh, that could be removing bad influences in people's lives, you know, uh, if, if people struggled with addiction uh, and then, you know, they get into their Christian life, they're doing great, and then things are hard and they're tempted to go back to that, helping them just keep those, those bad influences, those temptations out of their life taking away false teaching. And we think of false teaching as like some heretical guy behind a podium. I'm talking like bad advice. Like we, in our suffering, when we're vulnerable, we, 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 we cannot abide worldly advice 
that does anything but orient us to Jesus Christ. Um, so, so removing these things, really anything that could cause an already spiritually, emotionally weakened, vulnerable person to trip up, and as the scripture says, dislocate an ankle. That's the medical verbiage that they're using in this passage, that, that you dislocate an ankle. You, you fall wrong on your ankle and you get a compound fracture. That's what it's saying they, that we don't want to happen as followers of Jesus Christ. So how can you run the race of Christian endurance with a dislocated ankle, spiritually speaking? You won't, quite frankly. We won't, which is why we need the help that it's laying out for us. If other Christians are coming alongside us to encourage us and to help clear our path of, of, of impediments to spiritual growth and development and, and endurance, if we're seeing that in our lives, then folks, we're on the right path. That's an indicator. The second indicator that we're on the right path is peace. Now we can think about this in two senses. As Christians, through the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have peace. We have perfect peace in our relationship with God the Father through Christ our Lord. But our peace with God doesn't stay just between us and God. That peace gets practically worked out in our horizontal relationships with other people. You can't divorce those two things. If you're, if you're enjoying, as we ought to, the perfect peace we have with God through Jesus Christ, then that will push out into our relationships with others. We'll have peace with others. And, and, um, and we see this at the beginning of verse 14. Look, it says, pursue peace with all men. So, so that pursue, it's, it can actually, it's like, can be used in like a hostile situation. Like you're tracking them down to get them, you know? But when it's used with peace and things, it's this, it's this fervent, earnest pursuit of striving for people to have peace in our relationships with them doing whatever it takes to the, to, to our, in, in terms of our ability to have peace with people. Now, if you're a Christian and you're standing for biblical beliefs on things, there's going to be people that they're not going to allow you to be at peace with them from their end, but that's not what this is talking about. This is especially true, pursue peace with all men, in the sense of our relationships with other Christians, in the church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's especially difficult when... When is it hard to pursue peace with people? When they're hurting and broken and spiritually vulnerable, or when you're hurting and broken and spiritually vulnerable, or when you're both hurting and broken and spiritually vulnerable. That is when it's hardest to to die to yourself and to pursue them with peace. But if you're pursuing peace, especially in the church, then that's a great indication that you're on the right path, that you're oriented to Jesus, who is who? The Prince of Peace. The third indicator that we're on the right path is holiness. Now, look at the rest of verse 14. This applies to that word pursue as well. It says, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And again, because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sins, Folks, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are now considered holy in God's eyes. We are, are, are positionally holy is, is the term for it. But it's the idea that God sees us as holy and set apart for his holy purposes. We're consecrated. We're anointed unto God. Okay? So we have that in our vertical relationship. But this is why we have 
have access to the presence of God. It's why when Jesus Christ returns, we'll be able to not just be with him when we die in heaven, but we'll be able to come back with him when he establishes his kingdom on earth. Because we've been made holy through his blood. So we are made holy through faith in Christ. Therefore, God, folks, what does he expect of us in this life? Just to blow off our our holiness, our consecration, ignore it, and get on to other things that seem more urgent and important? No, he expects us to live lives of holiness, living out that holiness we've been granted in Christ. And he has given us who to help us? The Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. He sets us apart for God's holy purposes. He empowers and strengthens us for holiness, for for living. In fact, his sanctifying work in our lives, which if you've been in Christ for any amount of time, you've seen it to some degree. I've certainly seen it in the last 15 years, 17 years, however long I've been a, a believer. But his sanctifying presence in our lives is an indication that we're on the right track, spiritually speaking. We see that change, that difference he's making in our lives. So, Let's just sum up. If we're strengthening the weary and straightening their paths and pursuing peace with others and committed to living holy lives, then there's no doubt that we're on the right spiritual path oriented to Jesus who has already run the race and who is waiting for us folks at the finish line. Uh, Some of y'all know Stacy's grandma, Nanny, is coming to stay with us. I hope they're on Zoom. Uh, Nanny, we can't wait to have you uh, in Austin. This will be fun. And uh, for, for part of the time she's here, she's going to be living with us. And um, she's actually going to be here in time for uh, her 95th birthday in mid-August, which also happens to be our 14th wedding anniversary and actually happens to also be the kid's first day of school. So that's going to be a lot of festivities, but we're glad to have Nanny here for all those fun festivities and for some of the upcoming holidays and things. But we wanted to make things as easy as possible. If you've been to my house, you know it's a two-story house, okay? So we wanted to make things easy. We didn't want to put her upstairs, having to go up and down the stairs constantly, okay? So we took my office downstairs, and we converted it into a really comfortable bedroom. You're going to love it, Nanny, when you get here. Um, but just to make things easier, it's, it's, it's comfy now. Uh, and actually, John Servic uh, is going to come by and, and help build a little ramp in our garage to go up the steps so that it's easier for her to get in and out of that door uh, into our house so that she doesn't have to negotiate those, those steps, which trip me up, honestly. Um, so this, this process of physically making straight paths for Nanny in, in the sense of our, our house I think it's a great illustration for what we are called to do spiritually in the lives of one another as Christians. Um, Think about this. What if somebody was struggling to endure in their Christian life? What if they were growing weary and faint of heart? Well, what, what can we do? We can come alongside them and point them to Jesus instead of just piling on stuff to do for Jesus. I'm the worst in the world about that. Should we serve Jesus? Yeah, with everything we've got. But when somebody's already weary and overwhelmed and having trouble seeing Jesus and fixing their eyes on Jesus, do we just like holy huddle them and pile a bunch of stuff on them for, for them to do? No. You, you take stuff off their plate and you help them spend that time and that, that space to refocus, reorient to Jesus Christ. Um, someone might be a, a spiritual fall risk, all right, because they're emotionally tired Right? I don't know about you guys, but, but temptation's hard to fight off when you're tired and emotionally exhausted and, 
and hurt and suffering like we're talking about today. So you might be a spiritual fall risk. Well, how can, how can we help? We can, we can help make your path straight by removing sources of temptation and by reminding you of the truth of the gospel of God's grace. One of the greatest things we can do besides just praying for each other is to remind each other of the gospel. Don't ever get sick of hearing that. Man, if that becomes rote recitation, then we're in trouble. But we can help refresh the truth of the gospel for one another, and we ought to. This is exactly what Jesus did, and it's exactly what Jesus would do. And, and it's, so it's a good indication that we're on the right spiritual path if, if we're doing these things in our lives, that we're following in the footsteps of our Lord as obedient disciples. Suffering and I can't emphasize this enough, can be one of the most fruitful circumstances that we have in this life. Am I saying I'm excited that you and I face suffering? I am not. But am I telling you, eyeball to eyeball, that suffering can be one of the most fruitful experiences in our lives? You betcha. And we can't afford to waste our suffering in that way, okay? When we are spiritually weak and vulnerable, we can strengthen each other through care and encouragement. And we can help straighten each other's paths of discipleship by removing these stumbling blocks so that we don't trip over them. When we're hurting and we're tempted to hurt others, we can point one another to Jesus, who is our perfect peace himself and who powers us, who empowers us to pursue peace with others. He actually makes conflict resolution and reconciliation possible. Even in the hardest of relationships, he makes it possible because that's who he is. Um, when we're, when we're uh, hurting and we're tempted towards sin and unholiness, we can point one another to Jesus, who is our holiness and our perfecter, and who sent his Holy Spirit to empower us for holy living. These are all indicators that we're on the right spiritual path oriented to Jesus. But, but folks, what if we're not on the right path? What if we've gotten off the right path? That's where we're going to head in the next part of our passage. In verses 15 through 17, we see three, again, three spiritual indicators that we're on the wrong path and that we need to make a course correction and we need to make it quick or else we're going to get lost, quite frankly. These three indicators are stubbornness, sinfulness, and selfishness. First indicator that we're on the wrong path, folks, is stubbornness. Look at how verse 15 begins. It says, see to it that no one comes short or falls short, depending on your translation, of the grace of God. So given the context of chapter 12, this probably isn't talking about salvation, that they're going to lose their salvation. What it's probably talking about is, is that we're not going to rely on God's incredible stores of grace that he's provided for us in order to run the race of Christian endurance. We can't run this race without his grace. And if we stubbornly refuse to accept his grace in all the manifold ways he puts it in our lives, then, then what? Then our, our weak arms and our feeble knees will remain weak and feeble, and we will be in constant danger of stumbling over something and dislocating an ankle rather than experiencing the healing and the restoration through Christ and through other Christians that God is making available to us. If we see this sort of stubborn self-reliance, and I see it in my life sometimes too, all right? I'm not beating you guys up this morning. 
But if we see that in our lives, then it's an indicator that we're on the wrong path and we need to make a course correction. The second indicator that we're on the wrong path is sinfulness. Look at the rest of verse 15. It says, see to it. That's the same root word for overseers or elders in the New Testament. It's this idea of watch out, watch for it, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Now this is peculiar to us uh, because this bitter root language that we're seeing here, it comes right out of the Old Testament, right out of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. And in that context in Deuteronomy, this idea of a, of a root that produces the fruit of bitterness or a bitter root, it's, um, it's describing hard-hearted Israelites who, because of their circumstances and just honestly because of their sin nature, they, are, are, uh, they would turn away from the one true God in order to worship false gods, false idols. So that's the bitter root that, that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy. And so the author of Hebrews, what he's warning us is, is that even one person who turns away from God can infect an entire church family. And we've got so much infectious disease on our minds these days. Think about that with sin. If we allow sin to stay in the darkness and to fester like cancer, it's going to spread and it's going to affect other people in the church family. That's why it's so important for us to encourage each other toward holiness and not allow one another to to foster sin in our lives. And that can be a quote-unquote little thing too. But we need to watch out, see to it. Uh, so the author's warning that just one person who clings on to this bitterness ultimately towards God can infect an entire church, can infect more than just a church, and can cause many others to stumble in their race of Christian endurance. We become the stumbling blocks in other people's paths. So if we see this sort of, of person bringing sin into the church, if we see ourselves bringing sin into the church, that root of bitterness, we are that root If we see that, we cannot abide that, okay? And that's why I need y'all to come alongside me and go, dude, you're the root. Like that unforgiving spirit, Ben, that you're clinging on to in that relationship, that's it. That's the root of bitterness. We we got to help you, okay? All right. Third indicator that we're on the wrong path is selfishness. And look at the last two verses, 16 and 17. He says, see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And there's emphasis there. For a single meal, he sold his own birthright. That's how you're supposed to read that. Verse 17, for you know that even afterwards, that is after his brother got not only the birthright, but also the blessing, uh, that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And if you know the story of Esau, I'm not going to read it. You can go back to Genesis, uh, I think Genesis 25, and you can read that. But the idea here of immorality can be literal fornication or adultery or spiritual unfaithfulness towards God. Uh, depending on your translation, you'll see one emphasized or the other, or maybe both. Uh, the, the idea of being godless, this word, it's essentially what we mean when we use the word secular today. It's just, you just, God doesn't even come into your reckoning in, in how you live your life, okay? That's godless. So immorality and godlessness. So Esau 
the author of the Hebrews picks up on his example. He's the perfect, he's the quintessential Old Testament example of, of uh, a godless, spiritually unfaithful person who prioritizes his own selfish desires over and above anything of true, lasting, eternal significance and value. We're all little Esau's in different ways at different times, but he's a great sort of example to go, whoa, maybe I'm a, I got a little Esau in me. When we face suffering and hardship, now, I don't have to convince you of this. When we face hard times and difficulties, when I face suffering and hardship, that is, that is when we are the most vulnerable to the temptation towards selfishness and self-indulgence. If I get hurt, what's my natural response? Defense, right? I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to promote myself. I'm going to pursue my own ends. You're not helping me. You don't care. I'm going to do it, right? That, that's bitterness, but that's what our natural response is, okay? So when we're, being, uh, when we're experiencing the suffering hardship, whatever it may be, we're especially vulnerable to self-indulgence. Wanting, well, you know, and that's when you really got to watch out for the bad advice that the world gives. Oh, God wants you to be happy. You just, you just got to go be happy, and then that's all God wants, because that's all he cares about, is just that you're happy, right? Like that, you got to be on guard against this stuff. So, but any such godless selfishness in our lives is an indicator, folks, that we're on the wrong spiritual path. So if we're so stubbornly self-reliant that we miss out on the grace of God, or if we're allowing sinful people to infect the church, even if that sinful root of bitterness is us, to infect the church with bitterness and hard-heartedness toward God, or if we're, we're casting aside God's blessings and things of eternal value in order to pursue a self-indulgent lifestyle right now, right here, these are all indicators that, that we're on the wrong spiritual path and that we need, we need help because we can't do this by ourselves to make a course correction and to make it quick, okay? To reorient ourselves to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. Uh, my kids and I were watching a clip from Tom and Jerry the other day. I love Tom and Jerry. My kids love Tom and Jerry. It's like something we've passed down, right? We also do Bible studies and things, but we also watch Tom and Jerry together, and that's something that they've, uh, they've gotten from old dad. Uh, but we were watching it the other day, and at one point, uh, Tom, it's golf. Uh, Becky, you can appreciate this. So it's Tom using every implement of golf to try and, you know, whack Jerry. But at one point, Tom shoves his head up into a beehive. Actually, Jerry holds it there and he pops his head out of this tree and all of a sudden he's just his head's covered in a beehive with swarming bees all around him, okay? And he freaks out. What does he do? What's his natural response? He starts running around frantically, wildly, blindly, and he ends up not doing the very thing that his whole life purpose is built around, which is what? To chase Jerry the mouse. He's not doing that because he's running around like a crazy person with a beehive on his head. Okay? Uh, and, and as Christians, our purpose is to chase after Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to serve our Lord and Savior with everything we are, with everything that we have. That's the only place we're going to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. True purpose. So we're, we're supposed to be chasing after Christ to walk in God's ways according to his will for his glory. But what happens when a metaphorical beehive falls under our heads, guys? 
what happens when we've got a metaphorical, if you want to use it in that sense, a swarm of bees in our face chasing after us? What do we do spiritually when that happens? When we face unexpected suffering along the very path that we feel like God has laid out for us to take, that it's a, it's a, it's, it's a pathway through the valley of the shadow of death, and all of a sudden we look around and go, oh my gosh, we're in the valley of the shadow of death. How in the world did our good shepherd lead us here? And we see this unexpected suffering, and the beehive falls on our head. Jesus told us that we're going to face suffering. That's one of the things he emphasized the last night before he faced suffering for us on the cross, is that we will face suffering, but we can take heart because he's giving us his peace and his victory. But he tells us, and when that suffering comes in our lives, even though he spent all this time telling us about it in the Upper Room Discourse and all throughout Scripture, it catches us by surprise. It's like all of a sudden I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in a fallen world and there's stuff falling all around, around me. There's beehive on my head. And I start running around like a madman, like a cartoon character. And in the cartoons, what, what happens? They end up falling off a cliff. In our lives as Christians, what happens? Before long, we stray off the path. They get up after they smash flat at the bottom of the cliff. We, we oftentimes don't, Okay. The cartoon character, they fall off. We stray from God's way. We tend to fall into despair and spiritual disaster. When we're facing suffering and hardship, it's easy to walk away from God in order to pursue a path of stubborn self-reliance, sinful bitterness that we cling on to, and short-sighted self-indulgence that only focuses on this world right now instead of seeing our lives in light of eternity. In light of the story of Esau, I want to make an application that I hope is simple and straightforward. You apply it to your life however you need to, okay? But if we focus on our selfish appetites when we suffer, remember the story of Esau, he was exhausted. He had been out orienteering in the woods and hunting, right? He's exhausted. And so he's like, man, I could use some of that chili that my bro's making, right? So he's tired, he's hungry, he's vulnerable. And he gives away his birthright as the firstborn in the lineage of the blessing that God gave to Abraham. I mean, he he literally would have been the one through which the Savior of the world would have come, and he laid that aside so that he could have a bowl of chili to satisfy his immediate hunger. So when we face selfish appetites, when we suffer then we risk losing out on receiving all the awards that await us at the end of our race. Folks, if you're in Christ, you're not going to lose your salvation. And I hope every single person here and every single person on Zoom has put their faith in Jesus Christ. But folks, that's not it. We we don't just get our golden ticket and wait around until we're transported to heaven, okay? We have a job to do in our Lord and Savior. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ physically face-to-face with our glorified Lord then he's going to reward us for how we live this life for his purposes, for his glory, for the good of others. We can't waste that. The sin of Esau can manifest itself in any number of ways. Popping open a beer or a bottle of wine, you know, every time we get stressed out or just we've got a lot going on at work or whatever else, and we turn to drugs or alcohol or something, instead of what? Instead of turning to Jesus with our stress and our struggles, turning to prayer, asking others for prayer, going to God's word to be encouraged and refreshed. 
It could be vegging out on our infinite array of entertainment options. I'm not saying you can't watch a Netflix show. What I'm saying is we can't waste our whole lives entertaining ourselves. <laughs> we will. We've got the options. They're there. It's only $7.99 a month. You can waste your whole life being entertained. Instead of turning to Jesus for rest and restoration, how often do we go, man, I just need to go veg out on the couch. That's not going to give you rest. That's not going to restore your soul. But, but turning to Jesus, reorienting to him will. Or wandering around the internet seeking something to satisfy us instead of repenting and turning and turning back towards Jesus Christ and allowing him to just wash us clean to, to, to provide true satisfaction. He's the only source for it. We are all tempted at times to take the wrong path in life, and that's why we need Christ. And that's why we need each other. Folks on Zoom, people sitting here, that's why he put us together in these little local bodies of believers called local churches. Because we need Christ and because we need each other. People who can come alongside us when we have a beehive on our head when we're running around frantically and blindly beside a cliff. Um, In the sport of orienteering, the orienteer, that's what they call you. They have a compass, they have a special map marked out with control points, which are basically just checkpoints that keep you running along the right path. As spiritual orienteers, we have all the same equipment in a spiritual sense. We have the Spirit of God who provides us with guidance to run the race of Christian endurance. And oftentimes this guidance comes from other Christians. Uh, We have the written word of God, the map that provides us with everything we need to know about the spiritual terrain that we're going to be racing in. That's like spiritual topography, you know. And it it even has these control points. It even has, Scripture marks out for us Uh, these indicators to let us know that we're on the right path or not. The things that we've been talking about today and many, many others in the Word. And if we're strengthening each other and we're straightening each other's paths, and if we're pursuing peace and holiness in the midst of suffering, then folks, we know that we're on the right path. We're on the right route. We're on the shortest route to our destination in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if, if we're suffering and that suffering has caused us to turn inwards and to become stubbornly self-reliant and sinful and selfishly self-indulgent, then folks, we've strayed from the path and we can know that, but we can make a course correction at any time because of God's grace. We don't have to fall short of it. We can turn to him and he is good. Jesus Christ will provide in order for us to get back on the path and finish this race of endurance that we've been called to as followers of Jesus. And not only that, but to receive the eternal rewards that he's promised us for running this race faithfully. Um, Next week, we're going to get a glimpse of our finish line, and it's glorious. And I hope you'll be with us next week for the finish line. I'm going to close with a prayer from week six in our prayer study on bended knee. We're all coming to the end of that for the summer. Our, Our older girls have been doing it, our women's groups, our men's groups. Folks, let me just tell you, it is fantastic. 
It's all about prayer and prayers from Scripture. And I have extra copies. And if you're not in a group and you just want to go through it by yourself or, or with the spouse or with your kid or whatever, I'll give you those, okay? I will give them to you and just go through it. And it's fabulous. But I want to end with a prayer that showed up in week six last week while I was going through some of my own beehive scenarios. This is what they pray. If you'll bow your heads with me, I'll close this with this. The author writes, God, you know the path you want us on. Keep us from wandering off in our own direction. Keep us attentive to your word and the prompting of your Holy Spirit in us. Show us your way, Lord. We want to continually seek you. In Jesus Christ, amen.